Today's tale is called The Light Dies in Ackle. A few years ago, I spent two weeks writing in a cottage on Ackle Island, just off the coast of County Mayo in the west of Ireland. It's a wonderful, bleakly beautiful location. You can't help writing about it. Many thanks to the trustees of the Heinrich Burl Cottage. This is a wistful and windswept tale. The light dies in Ackle. Sorsha walks with me on the beach at Dugort. We look out at the vast inlet in the crook of Belmullet's arm. The little pier pokes into the water to our left, like a finger pointing out from under the blanket of Sleeve Moor. The clouds come and go from the top of the mountain, revealing cliffs that sheer off below the summit, treacherous in the mist. The weather system of Ackle swirls and moans. It is sometimes playful, sometimes spiteful, letting intense shafts of golden light pierce through the gloom, only to be snatched away again by brooding clouds. There is always a dark mirror image of the island in the sky, ready to punish us with downpour if we utter one word of complaint. And so we stroll upon the beach pretending we are natives, well worn by the teasing winds, not the Dublin blow-ins that we really are, colonising Ackle with our hopeless artistic pretensions. Sorsha has been my companion now for twenty years. The passions of the flesh have abandoned me, but there is a love that remains, a love that is deep and soothing, and by far the most wonderful thing that has ever happened. Yes, yes, I am undeserving, but so are we all, undeserving of the beautiful accident that alights on some lives and passes others by totally. Sorsha's love for me is hard to understand, for I have not been an easy partner to live with. But my love for her is simple, a gratitude that is occasionally magnificent in its completeness. I aspire to many things, but loving Sorsha is the one constant. And here she is today, her arm linked with mine as we pad softly on the sand. Where are we going? Nowhere, of course, in its literal and metaphorical senses. I can manage only a few minutes of putting one foot in front of the other. I bask in the soothing glow of her patience and know how much it hurts her to see me so diminished. Yet what are you supposed to do when you're dying? Do you insist on the release of your lover? Usher them away from your hearth in a great tantrum of rejection because you cannot bear their suffering at your suffering? Or do you greedily lap up their pity and their duty, ignoring the slow corrosion of love that inevitably follows the savage encumbrance of disease? Well, obviously, you do neither. And obviously, you do both. It's cancer of the esophagus. I am weakened, but not yet in unbearable agony. That's for dessert. It was probably the same cancer that put paid to Voltaire, so I'm in good company. My doctors say it has been developing for years, and that I should have taken aggressive anti-reflux medication when I was younger. But I didn't. Instead, I drank too much red wine, ate too much cheese, and pigged out on carbohydrates. Who wants to be a stick-thin seventy-year-old lettuce muncher? Well, me sometimes, on a bad day. Regrets are fine. I have a large collection. I regard them as old friends that I've neglected. Occasionally I make a gesture of indulgence and then I suffer for it. I can still talk, I can still walk, and I can hold Sorsha's hand as we share the bleak beauty of this magical little island. Ackle, as far west as Ireland will take you. Ackle... Haven of writers and painters, and home to charlatans and desperados. Adulterous retreat for Graham Greene, on the run from duty and family. 
rural Eden for Heinrich Böll, taking a break from the black industrial post-war prospect of West Germany. So many escapees, so many mad men and women opting out of the crushing boredom of modern life. There's something about the light. Oh, but there is! Don't scoff. And it's different depending on where you are on the island. Just like the wind and the ever-present haze of water that hangs in the air. Sometimes a cooling balm on a hot day. Sometimes a savage whipping in the angry cold. We live just up there, at the top of the hill, past St Thomas's and the Burl Cottage. From our windows you can see both the Silver Strand at Dugort and Kiel Loch, with the crashing Atlantic beyond. We have built our fortress and can spy invaders coming for miles. Sheltered by Sleeve Moor, until recently the highest mountain on Ackle, we are impregnable. Not that anyone wants to attack us, apart from the odd critic, that is. We are safe in our grand design. It was Sorsha's idea, of course. I sometimes wonder if I've ever had an idea myself, or if, in fact, they've all been Sorsha's. She's a sculptor, and I'm a painter. Or I was, until death grabbed me by the throat. She builds things, so why not a house? We reacted against all these ghastly white-cloned cottages that have popped up all over the place. 1990s tax breaks, most of them. Fine, and the tourists need a place to sleep. But why do they all have to look the same? Why has taste never blessed the Irish construction industry? So we weren't having any of that. We used the deserted village as our model. Abandoned and ruined, but one time teeming with life. They were dry stonewall cottages that grew from the earth. Organic, of the soil, made of ackle, not scattered like polystyrene cups, which is what the holiday developments resemble. We bought an old stone house, gutted it, and built another one just like it by the side and slightly further back on the slope. Then we connected them with a steel and glass atrium. One roof we covered in a specially treated corrugated plastic and the other in slate. We are well insulated and have carved out large windows to maximise the light. Behold our studio and living space, our love nest and bucolic retreat. We work well in the same place, talking back and forth as we try to hew something from the ancient power of this site. Mostly now I just sit and mutter at Sorsha as she shapes her objects and gives them life. Recently she has started work on a series of painted animal skulls. She was inspired by a Georgia O'Keeffe retrospective we both saw. But whereas O'Keeffe had made paintings of animal skulls situated in the red and blue of the American desert, Sorsha was painting the skulls themselves turning them from dead and discarded bones into vibrant living material. They are dazzling in their brightness and their ferocity. She also makes plaster casts and a small number of bronze casts of the skulls. She paints the plaster using a different acrylic from the one she applies directly to the bone in order to produce a harsher finish. She wraps the relatively few bronzes in a steel mesh which lends an extraordinary tension to the pieces as the animals appear trapped and furious at their confinement. It's all so different from what I do, or rather did, with my canvas. I love to watch her as she works, and it is hard to imagine this ceremony of artistic confidence taking place anywhere else but here. We have been acolytes since 1993, and our building project took us three years. We were beset with the usual delays and financial worries that inevitably accompany the pursuit of the dream home, we wondered at first if our presence on the island might be resented, 
especially by those who have made only a half-living from the land and those who must pander to the growing tourist trade in order to remain close to their place of birth. There's many a sheep on Ackle, wandering, looking startled, clinging to slopes and dawdling on roads, but it's a scant profit they bring to the small farmers who must eke out an income with other activities. We were wrong. We were not resented, and there is a deep community here of slightly alternative souls. We're as west as you get, still bridged to the mainland, where the wild waves and the harsh pure light beckon the artist. I am a painter. No, I must keep correcting myself, was a painter, in a semi-figurative style that I hauled up out of the depths of me. It took me years to develop, but I blossomed late to produce a body of almost passable work of which I am sometimes almost proud. Portraits and landscapes in the browns, greys and yellows of Ackle, distorted and contorted to meld with the peaty earth and the labile sky. I am the Kaim Soutin of Mayo, or at least I aspired to be. Paint the truth by representing the soiled agony of life, weathered and misshapen by the elements of experience. Humdrum deformity, wrote one critic. Infantile ductility, said another. And yet, sombre mining of the essence of pain, claimed critic number three, while number four went so far as poet laureate of Irish damnation. A word about Soutine. Fellow sufferer of fatal gastrointestinal affliction. Not for him the cult of worship that surrounds the infinitely less gifted and tediously overrated Van Gogh. No starry, starry shite, just the outlook born from deep knowledge of the earth, and portraits wrestled for and held in the pulse of the agonised gaze. Soutine takes the forgotten and ignored, and reveals resplendent majesty. He raises bellboys and pastry chefs to the status of kings, and he does this without any sunflowers. Oh, forgive me, I become splenetic with my hero's lowly place and that impostor's anointment as the grand panjanderum of romantic madness. Van Gogh painted faces with childish crudity, all surface and dazzle. Soutine liberated the face. He painted the soft clay of flesh and bone with a tender brutality and a violent empathy. He distorts to see, twists to uncover, cherishing, nurturing the dignity that he finds in the mud and the filth of neglected humanity and the ravaged vistas of despair. Saoirse took me to London to visit Caim, an exhibition of his paintings of hotel staff at the Courthold Institute. It was wonderful, even though the usual irritations of exhibitions were all present and correct. Boyfriends loudly impressing girlfriends with their knowledge of art. Audio guides, merchandise designed to wreck the art it leeches. And old people crawling about like semi-blind moles, reading the little captions and ignoring the actual paintings. I took great pleasure in coughing up some blood into my handkerchief and showing it to an old lady who ran away in horror, leaving me to enjoy the butcher portrait in peace. But what can you do? We need art. We need to be able to see great art displayed in public. However, I insist on a ban on audio guides and captions, and I demand a vow of silence. People need to look and think and wonder and glory, unafraid that their instincts might differ from accepted wisdom. They are distracted into compliance by the gimmicks of exhibition marketing, so that the experience is one of product consumption, not artistic encounter. I bore you. I certainly bore Sorsha, who buys me the catalogue and tells me to shut up. All right. And I am grateful to have had one last meeting with my old friend, 
whose ulcers and stomach cancer got him in the end, not that long after his work began to be properly appreciated. Maybe he should have cut off his nose. That might have raised his stock after death. Caim versus Vinny. How many tea towels did you shift? Sorsha drags me back to our hotel and packs the bags for our journey to Ackle. Minor artist returns to Mayo, barely a ripple on the pond. How big a fish am I, my love? Small fry, my dear. Your rant is louder than your mark. But still, a few decent canvases. Something beautiful despite yourself. Some serenity amid the dross. And you know what? That will do. It took us a while to get accustomed to the way Ackle changes your view of the world. I suppose I mean visually. I don't want to get into any kind of spiritual claptrap, as there's plenty of that going on as well. The island attracts all kinds of saints and martyrs, visionaries and seers and New Age proselytizers. We have a rainbow coalition of the half-cracked, from American ley-line diviners to Romanian Buddhist martial artists, all welcome, as long as they don't crowd us out of Lourdes on a Friday night. No, I mean the way you look at the world around you is changed by living on Ackle. Not if you've been brought up here, of course. Not if you're a veteran of the Mayo Coast. And you've not had the head-down frenetic charge of city living to pollute your interaction with the seasons. Out here there are seasons, not the vague temperature changes that Dublin thinks winter and spring are all about. Here you notice, are forced to notice the way the land moves through the year, responds and reacts to the constant ebb and flow of the climate. There's a patience that's demanded of you. Time will simply move here at its own pace, and it won't be consulting you about it. Ackle teaches you to wait, and while you're waiting, you look. You can't really be an artist at all if you will the days past too fast. Everything you need is here. You just have to accept the tempo. Hush now, and listen. Watch. Be amazed. I press Sorsha against me as we stop and drink in the stillness and the soft whispering water that plashes on the sand. The sun sparkles on the raindrops falling out to sea, and Sleevemore's rocky face shines briefly as clouds dapple the mountain. What riches, I say to Sorsha. At least I have known this. At least I have known you. She doesn't like my descent into sentiment. Just because you're dying, she tells me, doesn't mean you should succumb to self-pity. Oh, you cold, heartless bitch, I say, and kiss her full on her lovely mouth. I can still manage a kiss, even as the pain in my chest roars. It is time to tackle the hill that leads away from the beach towards our home. I know and love every step of the way, even as my body struggles with the slope. We pass the Strand Hotel, quiet in the off-season, then a batch of white holiday cottages, and behind them some real farmhouses. We move on past the long road to St Thomas's, the Church of Ireland House of Worship, whose gate is open in preparation for a funeral, or perhaps a wedding, or even a christening. Could it be that the Protestants can manage birth as well as death? I never did, coming to Sorsha too late to have children. The old mission house appears to our right as we climb the hill. What a shameful episode! the attempt to convert the Irish peasantry as they starved to death during the famine. Bitter memories, the viciousness of history. All that in Ackle as well, not just the pretty face of the present. On we go, past fields to our left, and the rise to Crinock, a smaller mountain that bows to Sleevemore. There is a group of cottages on a laneway to our right called the Colony. Then, near the crest of the hill, is the Heinrich Böll cottage, where the German writer lived, and where contemporary writers come to find inspiration or to rest. 
It's a favourite on the itinerary of German tourists. We pay it no heed, as we haul ourselves up and over and down the hill a little on the other side. Our beautiful house stands glinting in the flickering light. Is it wrong to be so proud of a building, of a possession? Our haven and nest, our lookout, our hideaway. This is where we've nurtured love as well as art, after all. Welcoming friends, dancing together in the wine-dark evenings, touching the sky, hearts full of giddy excitement at a new picture or a new sculpture. Here we survey the north and south coasts, the great pool of Keel Loch and the wild grey blast of Keel Strand. Here we reside until the end, though I can hear his nibs, the end, scrabbling around outside the door sometimes at night when I lie awake in pain and, I must admit, a little dread. I am proud of our latest acquisition, a framed map of Ackle that greets you as you open our front door. This is the map that demoted Sleevemore to the runners-up position. The highest point on the island is now Crochon at 688 metres. It pips our beloved neighbour by a whole 17 metres. The humiliation. The map is the most detailed yet by two cartographers called Dalby and the scale is one centimetre on the map to 250 metres on the ground. It is a beautiful thing, not just because we invest it with our feelings and our history together. It is art because the way the greens and blues harmonise with the black wooden frame we have chosen is attractive to the eye, but also because of the scientific skill that went into its cartography and the way that the coast and the mountains and the place names chime with the thrill of familiarity. This is our world, captured in two dimensions and yet also immediate and startling with its detail. I am forever tipping my hat, literally, to the map. From Saddlehead to Clamore, we can scan our domain in the blink of an eye, or we can contemplate its every dip and rise in detail. So I look at the map and I think of the island and I resolve firmly that I will not leave this place again. Sorcia knows, there's little point in any more trips to the hospital. How am I doing, Doctor? Still dying? What started as a difficulty swallowing and constant acid reflux is now the angel of death squatting in my gullet. I cough and splutter with blood and mucus. Sometimes I'm dizzy with the pain. Eventually there'll be no more walks, no more slow drives around Ackle, and I'll be confined to my bed, all my thoughts and memories filtered by increasing doses of morphine. But we're not there yet. I can still use my eyes and shamble about carefully. I can still speak, albeit with a croak. I have a little lie down and Sorcia works. I doze off easily enough, and my memories and deepest thoughts get wonderfully scrambled with the trivial and the irritating. When I wake up, I am bewildered by what's been going on in my head. A great reckoning, it's not. I am unable to put my mental house in order. When death arrives, I won't be ready. That's fine, I think. I shall be fashionably late. I must give Sorcia time to get her work done. I can't be bothering her with my childish needs every five minutes. She knows, though. She can sense it when I'm awake again and eager to be off on our next adventure. We look at the map and we decide where to drive for an hour or so. I am squeezing the best out of the last moments, I know. We both know. But as long as I'm up for it, what better way to relish the world and my final chapters? This afternoon we take the car down to Ackle Sound, capital of our island state, and fill her up. This is the business district, with the biggest supermarket and hotels aplenty. This is where the bridge takes you back onto the mainland and the various roads to Castlebar, Westport and beyond. But we're not stopping. 
We're well supplied at home, and we don't want to waste the hours shopping. Sorsha takes care of that. Sorsha takes care of everything. She manages to conceal the essential chores of life with her skill and creates time just for us. I know it's taken its toll. I can see the clouds of sorrow in her pearl-grey eyes, but as I reach to disperse them, I understand that I cannot. I'd be best just to attend to the task in hand. We are on a journey, a small one to be sure, but there are still a thousand undiscovered countries here. We drive slowly. Sorsha was always a cautious driver, especially on the road down to Keem Beach. I used to make fun of her, saying that she drove as if going over 50 kilometres per hour carried the death penalty. But now that we're carrying around our own death penalty, we go slowly in order to savour every contour and every inlet. Other cars can pass us by as they rush to get somewhere important, but we have nowhere special to go, and so everywhere we do go is special. I mention this to Sorsha, and she stops the car. I want bitterness and cynicism to the end, she tells me. No deathbed conversions, no weeping over lost friends or unfulfilled ambitions. She tells me that Ackle is a good place to die, if only because the scenery is so unforgiving. There's no lush, plush, soft, dewy nonsense here, just rock and water and the odd sheep. We get going again and drive in silence from Srahines to Blinskill, through Derines and on to Kildownet Castle, or Carrick Kildavnet Castle, or Koshloin Gronje, whatever you call it. This was a coastal lookout for Grace O'Malley, the Pirate Queen. Its position was of some considerable importance, guarding the entrance to Ackle Sound and its through connection to Blacksod Bay. It's a ruin now, but there's a joy to be had walking through the open doorway and trying to imagine life in the 15th century. Don't overdo it, I'm scolded as I try to play hide-and-seek behind a wall. Come on, we'll drive up the west coast to Duiga. It's the best part of the whole damn island. Precious few holiday homes, precious few buildings of any kind. If we stay, we'll get dragged into melancholic reverie, and we can't be having that. Give me crashing waves, not gentle ripples. Give me towering sea cliffs, not picturesque harbours. The southeast coast is for wimps. On we go. Indeed, the craggy, battered rock faces of the west of the island feed our appetite for the wild and spectacular. Careless drivers have plunged to their deaths here in the high winds. There's a fabulous savagery here. Even a house would be blasted into submission by the force of the weather. Why do we love it so, this sturm and drang of the Atlantic, with a steely sun shattering onto the waves, scattering the hard light, stirring the turmoil? We could watch this scene for hours, oblivious to the rest of the world, which seems facile to us here, crammed with petty irrelevance. We hold each other, though the car is warm, while the view is piercing with its cold delight. We are subsumed by this offering of violent grandeur. This is our religion, our ancient right, to watch the waters of the ocean smash against the land. The irresistible force, the immovable object, the power of erosion versus the vast titanic dance of the rock cycle. Hydrology and geology, intertwined and on display, we cannot but be awed. I feel a sharp stab of pain in my chest, and then another. The intensity increases, and I gasp for air. The pain, I say, the pain has come. Sorsha knows what this means. I am descending. Not long to go now. Perhaps I am saying goodbye to the waves for the last time. But we take the quickest way home, which is onwards to Duiga, loop around the keel, and then up the hill. The pain gets worse with every metre we travel, but even the pain gets exhausted with the effort, 
and it eases off by the time I'm propped up in bed. I laugh and tell Sorsha that we should go back to the cliffs because the pain has lost its grip. She pours me a glass of red wine and I sip the poison that has helped to kill me. My, it tastes good. Crushed rubies with blackcurrant overtones, a hint of chocolate with spiced tobacco and all the luxuriating bollocks of wine talk. This is better than chemo, better than radiotherapy, better than endless consultations and endoscopies. We're done with all that now, with the terror of the diagnosis, with the doom of the prognosis, with the guilt and the shame of having failed to look after myself properly. Years of self-neglect have led to this moment. I am abandoning my lover because I failed to keep myself healthy. What a fool. What a churl. I tell her I'm sorry once again, but she just refills my glass and shrugs. I make my familiar excuses. Ah, well, you have the house and a pile of mediocre paintings to remember me by. It'll take a fair while to flog those off. You'll be glad of the space when I'm not under your feet. You're not dead yet. There's at least half a bottle to go. I'll drink to that. Sorsha wipes away a silent tear. Let's just watch the light. And so we do.